The following is a recorded sermon delivered by Elder Steve Jackson on Sunday, November 15th, 2020, Fort Smith Primitive Baptist Church, 2201 South Houston Street, Fort Smith, Arkansas. Thank you, Brother Bernie. Appreciate your prayer. This morning, we'd like to look at an event that occurred during the Apostle Paul's ministry and then a reference that he makes to it a little bit later. But he spent some time uh, at Corinth, spent some time at Ephesus, and in fact, very influential in uh, establishing, constituting uh, churches throughout Asia and blessing the brethren there by preaching the truth, preaching grace, so the preaching of grace is nothing new. The preaching of grace is ancient. In fact, God himself preached grace to Abraham. We know the account when he preached the gospel to Abraham. He used some of the most beautiful illustrations using the sand of the seashore, using the stars of heaven, the creation, the work of his own hands, things that he had the answer to. Isn't it a marvel that God knows the exact number of granules of sand on this globe? Isn't it a marvel to know that God knows the exact count of stars in the universe? And we can boil it down as far as you want to boil it down. And that is that God knows the exact count of every molecule in our bodies, making up our bodies. There's not a rogue cell in our body that God is not aware of. There's not a thought that passes through our minds that he's not aware of. Paul said, in writing to his Hebrew brethren, that the word of God is quick and powerful. Now he's referring there to the word of God, our Lord and our Savior. The word of God is, is quick and powerful. Did you know that he's just as quick and powerful today as he was when he spoke and light obeyed him. He's just the same today. Sharper than any two-edged sword. When Lisa had her LASIK surgery on her eyes, the op ophthalmologist used 
an instrument with a diamond on the tip of it and made small incisions on her eyeball to change the shape of it so that her astigmatism would be relieved and she would have clear vision. In fact, I believe he took it nearly to 2020. But today, they're using lasers that are sharper than any physical instrument. They're using light to cut flesh when it comes to doing surgeries on eyes and other things. But the Word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than any laser will ever be. Any instrument made by man, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing to the asunder the joints and marrow, the soul and spirit, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. My phraseology in quoting that may have been a little off, but I think the essence of it is right there. And that is, we cannot fully, nor will we ever be able to fully determine that place that separates the joints and the marrow, the bones and the marrow. The bones and the marrow are one. We are not able to separate it. The soul and the spirit Many of conversations and hours of perhaps even debate among old Baptist circles, some call it hard shelling or shelling. Many efforts even probably before the Lord's people in an attempt to divide the soul and the spirit. And here credit is ascribed to the word of God and I don't believe that it's possible for us to fully comprehend and grasp the difference in soul and spirit as it relates to the disclosure that the Apostle Paul gives. But he's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So he's given us some things that are physical. Soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. And then that which cannot be seen which is the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's the discerner of the thoughts and then the intents of the heart. I am not able to 
discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. I'm not able to see them. But he is. Nothing passes through our mind that he's not aware of. He's just the same today. We turn now over here to Acts chapter 19. Apostle had suffered during his ministry. He was not preaching freely, meaning he met with great resistance. His life was threatened. Preaching a resurrected Savior. That's resistance. When your life is at risk for preaching. And that's exactly what the Apostle found himself up against. But the more resistance that he experienced the more the gospel prospered. That's a pattern in the scriptures. The more resistance, the more prosperity, so far as the gospel is concerned. Starting over here, <clears throat> Verse 21, Acts chapter 19. After these things were ended, it's interesting if you look at the things that ended. There were some people that considered themselves to be exorcists. We're familiar with what that is. But they knew that Paul and just an article, an apron, a handkerchief, or something that he came in contact with, when carried to the sick and the afflicted, brought about a miracle of healing. When my sister-in-law was approaching the end of this life, laying in ICU in the hospital years ago, her family members would come and lay handkerchiefs on her body and pray over her. And I didn't really understand what it meant or why they were doing that. I, I didn't know, but... I think I understand now why. And that was they were trying to replicate the healing and miracles that the Apostle Paul performed. When he wasn't even present, it was just a handkerchief that was laid upon somebody that was sick and they were healed. Well, these, these people who were considered to be exorcists decided to give it a try themselves. You see that? happen in the scriptures and they were called vagabond Jews exorcists 
took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt upon them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Notice what happens next. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So the miracles that Paul was blessed to perform, even the handkerchief that was carried to somebody that was ill, brought about an event where those of the curious art, meaning those that were practicing witchcraft, more or less, brought their books, and they burned them, and the gospel prevailed. And after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul was on a mission. He had his face set to go to Jerusalem and later go to Rome. But he was, he was on a journey, and he was on a pathway. So he went into Macedonia. Two of them that ministered to him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. And the same time there arose no small, small stir that way, in, in the way that the apostle was going. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. So, what's occurring here is, is that the preaching of grace and the preaching of truth and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was putting a dent in the business of idol construction, of making idols, in the image of Diana, Diana, right, which they advocated fell down from Jupiter. So these men, Demetrius and his craftsmen, were they had a big business going, making idols, making little 
images of Diana and selling them. But the preaching of grace and the, the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was costing them economically. And so they began to put up resistance. Did you know that the preaching of grace and the truth as it is in Christ Jesus is very expensive to those who are advocating and embracing works, doctrines? It's just the same today. It's just the same today as it was in the days of the apostle. Grace poses a threat to those who are making a living peddling their version of Christianity. It's just the same today. We sing a song. Grace is free. Grace is free. You know, when something's free, we understand that it was very expensive, requiring the blood and life of our Savior. We understand it was not free in that respect, but as far as, the, as, far as we're concerned, grace is free. Let's keep reading. He called the craftsmen together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. It's just the same today. If there is a religion that is made and constructed by the hands of man, it is a false religion. The only true religion is that which was made without hands. And that would be the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in Ephesians, it said it was built upon the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And we know the, the text that we all love and adore. Upon this rock will I build my church. Who said that? Christ said that. This is his church. And the gates shall not, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. Why? Because he constructed it. But here we have the false god Diana and the craftsmen that were, that were making idols in the image of this goddess. They began to suffer loss as a result of the truth the impact that it created. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that of the temple of the great goddess Diana, 
should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. You need a qualifier for the world for the word all? There's one for you. We know that the whole world wasn't worshiping Diana. It was limited to the people at Ephesus. When they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city, notice what happens next. And the whole city was filled with confusion. Did you know that the most simple doctrinal truth of grace and grace alone has zero confusion attached to it. Zero confusion. But there are many other things that are advocated even within the same groups, communities, that are very confusing to the Lord's people. But I'll tell you, grace is free, can be understood by the youngest child who has been affected by that grace and by the oldest individual that's within the hearing of the gospel. That grace has affected them too. It is so easy to understand that it's grace plus nothing. It's not grace plus you. Grace plus the preacher or any other mathematical equation. It's grace is free. There's no confusion when it comes to the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. But here, when you introduce these idols and these things that are made by the hands of man, even if they're not tangible or physical, it might just be some concept or some idea or some curious craft, right? Confusion ensues and overtakes the people, just like it did on this occasion. You might have one collection of a people that have, have it as grace plus some degree of activity on the part of man. Another group that would believe that it's grace plus a minimal activity on the part of man. But I'll tell you, if you have any activity on the part of man, you have confusion. What are the infinite... What is, what is the conclusion of the matter? It's infinite. There's no end. In writing that script, when it's grace plus something, there's no end to the possibilities of what you can do and craft with that line of thinking. And you can see how it brings about confusion couple of examples. An example would be all of those that lived before Christ. All of those that lived outside of the camp of Israel. 
All those that did not see the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, that were not acquainted with the tabernacle in the wilderness, all of those that lived so far away from, from the camp of Israel, they had no idea that God was making and, 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 and bringing such powerful works for this nation that he chose and called out of the walks and out of the loins of Abraham and Sarah. How were they saved? By what works were they saved? Well, at this point, you could, if you want to make it by the work of man's hands, you could create and write any scenario that your imagination can come up with. One of which that's popular in religious circles is a thing called the millennium and the millennial reign of Christ, so-called, at the end of time. That he'll come and reestablish his kingdom in Jerusalem. That's what the premillennial teaching teaches. And all of the churches at this point will have been raptured meaning the people of God who had reacted positively and believed the gospel would have been raptured at this point. And all of those who failed at the task would be left behind. And so for all of those poor souls that lived before the advent of Christ and outside of the influence of Israel would be left behind because they didn't have the opportunity to believe because there was no knowledge. And then there are all manner of other things that are written into that in terms of tribulation, the apocalypse, and all of the horrors that are associated with this period of time that all of those that were either outside of gospel influence or that rejected the Messiah when he was here are given a second opportunity a second chance to believe and to be carried home to heaven at some point in the future there's not a lot spoken of concerning that event. Tremendous amount has put, been put into the religion of the millennial reign. I won't apologize by calling it of and in itself as a religion. It is made by hands, and they weren't God's hands. It was made by the hands of men to plug holes in a leaking cistern. A cistern, a container that could not hold the water. Or what about the infants? Or what about those who are mentally handicapped, suffering palsies and other 
things in their mind, incapable of processing in their mind thoughts. Are incapable of confessing with their mouth the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. Or what about the thief on the cross? You see, the religions that have been made and constructed by the hands of man hold no water. They cannot hold water. It brings about confusion because any number of questions can be brought up when you describe such a theory and such an eschatology or a study of the end of time is that. What does it produce? It produces confusion. But what flies in the face of the religions created by the hands of men? What destroys the economy created by the hands of men in religious circles? Grace and grace alone destroys it. It cannot stand. Cannot stand. But all of that contributes to a confusion. And we understand that God is not the author of confusion. It's so simple. But one of the reasons that it is so unpopular is because it removes the righteousness of man from the equation. You see, the nature that we have in Adam wants to retain a righteousness and have just a spark of righteousness that we can claim and present to God as a means of our salvation which comes in the form of belief in a resurrected Savior. But that's not what the Bible teaches about righteousness. The Bible teaches that all fell in Adam and fell into a state of death in trespasses and in sins and an incapability of recovery in and of themselves. The Bible is plain concerning the death in trespasses and in sins. Adam is our federal head, left us dead. We didn't have a spark of righteousness. We weren't just sick. We were dead in trespasses and in sins. And it required grace and the grace of God to quicken us and to impute righteousness and his righteousness to us. In Corinthians later it says he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness 
of God in him. So who made us righteous? He made us righteous. We didn't make ourselves righteous. He made us righteous. And if we have and are in possession of this righteousness, which comes from him, then we do want to exhibit it and put it on display in our lives to glorify God and not glorify ourselves or the work of our hands. We don't light a candle and put it under a bushel. We're a light that's set on the side of a hill that cannot be hid, that others may see our works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But the righteousness is his. Paul said the same thing. They being ignorant of God's righteousness, speaking about his Jewish brethren, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Why? Because it's expensive. It costs money. It makes a withdrawal from the religion made by the hands of man. The Demetriuses of the world begin to lose money. The way God set the church up, <laughs> He set it up to function if necessary and in times past. And you look when the church was suffering severe persecution as it did in Hebrews chapter 11, when the brethren were being sawn asunder, when they were being fed to the lions for believing that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that it was grace and grace alone that saved them. It got them fed to the lions. It got them sawn asunder. That's the impact that grace has upon the flesh. It's just the same today. It's no different as it was in the days of Demetrius. No, you see, the Bible doesn't teach that there is some rain that's going to occur out here for a thousand years for people to have a second chance that did not have have the opportunity to hear the gospel preached or believe and confess with their mouth. No, the Bible teaches no such thing. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace and grace alone and Jesus Christ took care of that work on the tree of the cross and we believe in the effectual work of atonement on the cross and that Christ saved his people from their sins just like the angel preached to Joseph. He shall save his people from their sins. We understand that he did that. He finished the works just like he said he did when he was there hanging suspended between heaven and earth. And he said himself, it is finished. My brethren, Christ finished the works. It's grace and grace alone. It is not by the works of man's hands. Amen. It is not confusing. It is so simple. Perhaps too simple. Maybe the flesh just wants to make it as complicated as possible 
And you know why and what the intent and end of that would be? To glorify oneself. To sell books. And to sell other things. And to create your own little business venture. And we could see it in the 3,000 or so different concepts, ideas, and crafts that are around this globe. I won't apologize for that. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. To them whom the preaching is foolishness will resist grace all the days of their life. They will hate the fact that God chose His people before the world began. They will despise the truth and the preaching that God bestowed His love on His people before the world began. And that He chose them in Christ Jesus before the world began. They will resist and fight to the death the preaching of the cross. It's foolishness unto them. It's just the same today. It's just the same today. You see, my brethren, it's not confusion. It does not produce confusion. The work of man's hands are responsible for confusion. Wherever confusion exists, They that heard these things were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of Ephesus. There was a point a little bit further along. Just to kind of summarize here. That they cried in the theater for two hours at the top of their lungs. Great is Diana of Ephesus. Until a town clerk came and said, what are you doing? Really? These guys hadn't said a word against Diana. Your God, your craft. They hadn't, they hadn't said a thing about her. What are you doing? Well, what was occurring was Paul was preaching. He was performing miracles by the power God gave him in the constitution of the New Testament church in those days, right? And people believed and were following after the truth of grace and grace alone. They burnt their books of the curious craft. Those practicing witchcraft piled their books. Was it 50 shekels? A silver, an expensive proposition. Burn them. I'll tell you, brethren, in order for us to fully experience 
the amazing grace of God in our lives, there are some things that we've got to leave behind and burn. And it may be valuable to us. It could be a church. It could be individuals. It could be families. Whatever the case might be, there are certain things that we need to relinquish, to turn loose of, to burn. And then watch what happens. Watch what happens as the Lord opens up the windows of heaven and pours out blessings that cannot be contained. Now, I'm quoting Micah, and he was referring there to tithes and offerings of the Jews that they were robbing God of in the days of Malachi. Okay, I'm quoting that. But the principle applies today. Why? He is just the same today. And the God that lived in the olden times is just the same today. You see, I believe there are some amazing things lying ahead for the people of God. And I believe there are amazing things that await the church at Fort Smith. I do. I am convinced of that. I believe that God has an amazing work ahead for the church. Not only here at Fort Smith, but the churches across this country. Wherever grace is preached, I believe God has a special thing in store for us. Blessings that can't be measured. And you know, it's not going to come in the, in the form of winning a lottery or some windfall of cash or material items or big houses or fancy cars. No, it's going to come in the form of, of things that cannot be bought with money. Things that money cannot buy. And you know what you can't buy or sell? You cannot buy and you cannot sell grace. It's not for sale, never has been for sale. Grace is free. Grace is free. In a few minutes or less, we're going to look at a point in time where the apostle references his experiences over here, and we could look and see his attitude. And I think it's important, right? Part of what we glean from preaching is not only the grace of God that brings us salvation that has that appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's more than just that he's procured purified unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Yes, God's people who are saved by grace are zealous of good works. It doesn't give us license to check out, to hit the sideline. No, what it does is it gives us motivation to press into the kingdom of God. That's what it does. It compels us. It gives us an unction to move forward. The church has always been in motion. It's never been in retreat. It's always been in motion. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why? Because the church is in motion. 
Look what Paul says over here when he's referring to the preaching of the gospel. For the sake of time, I'm going to uh, skip down here to verse 6. He says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you have the light shining in you? Paul here is referring to a vessel, for we have this treasure in an earthen vessel, and he's referring to the trust that God has given to the apostles and to the ministers, meaning that he has flooded their hearts and mind with a desire and fire in their bones to preach the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, referring to himself. But guess what? That treasure in an earthen vessel is shared. It is not exclusive to the ministry. You have a treasure in an earthen vessel too. It is called Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ dwells in you richly. He dwells in all of us. Notice why, he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Does that not fit perfectly? Does that not synchronize perfectly? That the excellency might be of God and not of us? He closes out the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, Wherefore, let him that glorieth, or he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Pers Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Let's skip down to verse 18. And this, this right here would be a whole other session and there's so much rich depth and lusciousness here. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us. Did you hear that? Did you hear the language? The light affliction, which is just for, is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen 
are eternal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And then he goes on to speak about about the point in time whenever the Spirit departs and is housed and clothed in glory. I'll tell you, brethren, we all have suffering in this life. Some have more suffering than others, but it brings about this excellency and this glory in our lives. And any time that that suffering has taken place in a church environment when the gospel is suppressed, the gospel prospers. The apostle, if there was anybody that ever suffered, I would say it was him. But he bears about in his body the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that he is suffering himself. Yes, vicariously he suffered in Christ, we suffered in Christ, but he's speaking here about suffering as an ambassador and minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the suffering of, the, of, of, of Christ in his body, carried it with him. It was part of his existence. And you could go over into Peter and read what all of that, what all of that uh, transposed or what that meant in Peter's life, the suffering that he experienced in the brethren that were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, and what they suffered. Those that were scattered because they suffered. And they were scattered because of the persecution of God's people. And I'll tell you what, as long as we're preaching grace and grace being free, there is going to be some form of resistance and persecution. We've been blessed in this country. Laws protect us to be able to worship like this without being injured or killed or maimed. There are parts of the world where if we were engaged in this activity, would be lined up against the wall, an AK-47 opening wide open and putting an end to this preaching. I'll tell you, we've been blessed, my brother. We have been blessed to live in the United States of America. And I know that I've taken it for granted. But let's pray for Zion, pray for the church. Let's pray that God will continue to deliver us and that his presence and his magnificence and his glory would be known and felt in this community. And that his people, his born again, the elect people of God in this community would be compelled to seek out the message of grace, which is in the person and face of the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate your kind attention.